for the last six years, on the first Sunday of every month, I've been giving a seminar. Now, originally that was only for my patrons, but I've recently moved it over to my YouTube channel. So this month's seminar is actually an event that I ran in LA recently with some dear friends. They are Elliot Morgan, Ryan Nicodemus, Lisa and Michael Gungor and James Spate. And it's an evening of music and conversation and talks. But before we get to that, I just want to tell you about something new that's happening for all my patrons. And that is a non-membership course. A long time ago, I actually ran something called a non-membership course. And at the end, everybody got a card that guaranteed they were not a member of Parotheology, just in case anybody accused them of it. And this is based on that course. And it's really just an interactive space where people who are new to my work or who have just been around the edges of it for a long time can go deeper and get a kind of broader sense of what's going on. And this is going to be facilitated by my friend, Kate Burgess, who got into my work about three years ago through Atheism for Lent. She devoured it and integrated it into her life. And she's been facilitating groups for the last two years, helping other people explore this work. We'll be running it on probably a Saturday and a Sunday at different times so that we can accommodate as many time zones as we can. And as I say, it's open to everybody on my Patreon. So even if you're giving $1 a month, you can have access to it. You can do them all or you can just jump into the ones that interest you most. If you're interested in being part of that, there's a link down in the box below. So just click that. You can find out more. And I uh, hope you enjoy this event. Uh, this event was very special to me because uh, it uh, took place just a few months before I left L.A. And uh, as I say, lots of my friends were participating in it and many more of my friends were there attending. And uh, I miss them all dearly. OK, I hope you enjoy it. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, Pete, did you hit record on this thing? Are you hitting record on this? Hi, everybody. Okay, uh, guys, we're going to get started in just a second. Um, I love Pete very much. He's been very encouraging to me over the years uh, through ups and downs. He actually encouraged me to go back to grad school recently. I just found out I got my master's, and I passed high enough to go to a PhD program, which is really cool. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm uh, studying what's called depth psychology, which is the uh, psychology of the unconscious. I'm doing it with an emphasis in union psychology, or as Peter likes to call it, wrong! Bullshit. Bullshit! Pete wanted to have a union come up top to talk about wholeness. He loves that stuff. Sometimes I like to just say words like archetypes and watch them start twitching. Uh, well, Pete does Lacanian psychoanalysis, and I don't know if there's anybody in here who's hard of hearing, but uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis in sign language is just this over and over again. Uh, this is going to be a wonderful show, everybody. We're going to have some music that's going to be amazing. We're going to have some philosophy that's going to be just fine. Before I finish up, though, I would like to show you the flyer that he made for this real quick. There's a couple observations I've made about it that I would like to explore. Okay, so this was on uh, Pete's Twitter, which is a website. Uh, so, you should have deleted this from the internet. Okay, so up top we have the words, the unknowing God. Very clever, good start so far. An event with, for those with nothing in common, beautiful. What time is the event? You don't know. <laughs> Where is it? It's not important. <laughs> You'll find it. The important thing is that there's film strips. You know like how live events are? You know the difference between a live event and a filmed event? Doesn't matter. Let's go through the names with special guests. Oh, by the way, Peter Rollins' name not on here. <laughs> like someone's gonna see it. 
be like, that's good enough. I have to go to this. The special guests, Elliot Morgan. Okay, so that's fine. Look at the photo Pete used for himself. You look like an eye doctor test. Like, that's not... The names aren't even in order. It goes Elliot Morgan, Lisa Gunger, Ryan Nicodemus, and James Spape. But the photos go with Elliot Morgan, <laughs> Ryan Nicodemus, Lisa Gunger, and James Spate. It's the most confused. Dude, it is the worst, worst flyer I've ever seen. It is offensive to people. It is the most offensive thing that's been said on this stage thus far today. Uh, but I'm so excited to hear you talk. And thank you, everybody. And please welcome to the stage, James Spate. Four years old and it was monsters under my bed Parents told me that they lived in my head At that age I couldn't comprehend what they said Or the years that I would spend Separated from myself Find my tension somewhere else. Oh. to take some time to try to get to the heart of what I'm trying to do with my work, right? That's what I'm going to try and do today. And I think that if at the end of what I say you don't like it, then it's great because we've got nothing in common, right? But if you do agree with me, then it's great because we have nothing in common, right? So it kind of works either way. That's why I wanted to call this an event for those with nothing in common, because I want to do an apology for nothing, for the unknown and for lack. Um, now, when I first started this work, uh, one of the first talks I ever gave, I told a story. It's an old story. It's about three people who die on the same day. This mystic this evangelical pastor and this fundamentalist preacher, right? So they all die in different parts of the world. They go to heaven, and as we all know, you have to get an interview with Jesus before you get in. So they're waiting in the waiting room, and St. Peter comes out, and he looks at the mystic, and he says to the mystic, right, it's your turn. So the mystic gets up, goes into the interview room, the little signs turn round, meeting in progress, and he's in there for about 30 minutes. And then he comes out and he's laughing to himself. He's smiling and he goes, ah, he says, I knew I was wrong. I knew I was wrong. And he, he walks into heaven. And then it's the evangelical pastor's turn. So he gets up, walks into the room, meeting signs turned around, and he's in there for about two hours. And he comes out and he's pretty distraught. And he's like, oh, I can't believe it. Like, how could I have been so wrong? 
and then he walks into heaven. And then finally, it's the fundamentalist turn. And he gets up, dusts down his Bible, walks into the room confidently. The little meeting signs turned round. He's in there for about five hours, right? And finally, the door flies open, and Jesus comes out and says, how could I have been so wrong, right? <laughs> now, when I first told that story, I, I believed in the manifest meaning of it, right? Because that story is all about identifying with the mystic, right? Who's kind of a Kantian who goes like, you can't know the in itself, the noumenal realm, before the in itself, before ultimate reality, we cannot penetrate into that. So that we have to have epistemological humility, right? There is an unknown within the mystic. We can never penetrate to actual reality. But in the 30 years since I've told that story, I'm now on the side of the fundamentalist, right? In the fundamentalist, they so questioned reality that reality itself is exposed as having unknowing within it, right? So in the very beginning, the mystic, right? This epistemological unknowing, the unknowing is within us. But at the end of the story, you discover that the unknowing is woven into reality itself. This is the move from epistemological unknowing to ontological unknowing. Ontological unknowing is the idea that there is some sort of gap or asymmetry, some quantum dimension to reality that means reality isn't just a mystery to us. Reality is a mystery to itself. And that's what I want to defend in the next 20 minutes and then uh, in the conversation as well. So, oh, and by the way, interestingly, the most famous sermon ever preached up until today, right, is, uh, was the Apostle Paul in Athens, right? In Athens, famously, he's there and he sees this altar and the altar reads agnostos theos to the unknown God. And he says, I'm going to make this unknown God known. But here's an interesting thing about that is, Yes, of course, that's what it meant. It can actually be translated unknown or unknowable. There's, a, there's the two manifest meanings, right? But there's a more literal meaning. And if anyone's interested in psychoanalysis, you know that you don't listen to what people intend. You listen to what they say, right? You're a literalist. You're a biblical literalist whenever you listen to somebody. So if someone says their ex-partner's name, and they go, oh, no, I didn't mean to say that. I know you didn't mean to say it. The truth isn't in what you intended. The truth is in what you said, right? We the, the truth isn't what is said, not was the death of the author, right? So in the same way that when Democrats held up the sign, love Trump's hate, they were telling us the truth, literally the truth. We love Trump's hate. We love this. This is fantastic. It feels wonderful. It's brilliant. We can like, get lots of people listening to the TV and we can l listen to the news. Or, you know, the, the truth is on the surface. Don't listen to the intention. Don't get carried away with what people intend. Listen to what they say. That's what the Freudian slip is. The Freudian slip is when you don't listen to what someone thought they said, you listen to what they did say. In the same way, agnostos theos can be literally translated the unknowing God. And so if Paul was trying to make known the unknown God, then today I want to make known to you the unknowing God. I want to argue that unknowing is fundamental to our subjectivity. There is a certain type of unknowing that is originary, that is part of what it means to be a subject. And how can we approach that? I was asked recently, do you believe in life after death? Um, it was actually, I was uh, after a conversation on the minimalists and someone said, do you believe in life after death? And of course you can say yes, right? And you can mean it poetically, right? Do you believe that there's life after the death of someone you love, right? I have a friend who recently lost his son, and that's a very real question for him. Is there life after death? It's a real question, and it's been six months, and he doesn't know. And he holds out a candle of hope that there is life after death, but he's not there. And then, of course, you can say, is there life after your death? Like, will you continue to have an influence in the people's lives that you touched? 
your friends, your family, your children, your work? And that's a real question as well. But you can say, well, you know, that's all very poetic. Is there life after death? And so today, I'm going to let you know the secret. I'm going to give you evidence and proof, right? There is life after death, and I can prove it to you. I can prove it to you. And not poetically, really. There is life after death, and, and you are the evidence of it, right? One of the central insights of Freud shows us that we only become subjects through death. There is a fundamental death or loss that is a crucible we all must pass through in order to become subjects. Now, this is called castration in psychoanalysis. Um, it's called the incest taboo in, in, in anthropology. But it is the idea that actually you come into being through, through something being ripped away, some sort of death, some sort of loss, some sort of unknowing, and it marks you for the rest of your life in different ways, depending on, you know, your structure. Um, now, at a simple level, I'll describe it like this. Uh, when you're an infant, you experience the presence and the absence of the breast or the bottle, right? There's a presence and an absence, and the infant begins to learn about presence and absence called Fort Da, the Fort Da game because Freud noticed that his nephew would throw a spiel away and then pull it back and we get lots of joy out of this repetition, repetitious game of presence and absence and if you see kids they always play this game throwing away things and then bringing them back throwing food off their, their table hiding something and there's incredible enjoyment in both the loss and the return or even peekaboo right so the most basic game we play is the game of presence and absence but then Freud noticed a second form of presence and absence, even more profound than this. And by the way, the child is potentially playing with the presence and absence of the mother other, the bottle, the breast. They're getting control. That's their first experience of, of absence and presence. But then they encounter something even more disturbing. And it is the present absence of the other's desire. Not only is there a bottle or a breast, there is someone who is offering that or not offering that. There is a desirous other. And the infant, very early on, is asking itself, how can I be desirable to the other? What is it that makes me desirable to the other? What does the other desire? And the infant, very early on, starts to get what's called joint attention, where they start to look at where, say, the mother is looking. They start to take an interest in the attention of the parents. They start to desire the desire of the one they desire, right? So the infant experiences the other is an enigmatic other who has some desire, who sometimes feeds them, sometimes doesn't, sometimes is there, sometimes isn't. And it's a present absence because desire is absence. Desire is a lack. Right? When you desire something, you don't have it. So desire is a type of lack that you feel. Right? Just like there's a difference between not talking and not talking. Right? We all know that. In a relationship, there's not talking and there's not talking. Right? So there is a difference between... There, so there is, in a sense, a desirousness that is a lack that is felt, a presence that is felt. Now, lots of things come out of this. This is very important. Because the infant's desire is drawn by this enigmatic, unknown dimension of the other. Freud calls it dasting. Dasting is the name of the enigmatic desire of the other, the mother other. What does the other want from me? This weird, enigmatic, impenetrable void of the other's desire. What do they want? And what happens is we start to try to fantasize an answer to that. We start to try to fantasize what it is the other wants. And René Girard is very good on this. He talks about how uh, in desire, I start to desire what you desire, right? So Lacan says very famously, what we desire is the other's desire. In other words, the most, the most kind of rich 
and most powerful and most precious material in the world is the desire of the ones we desire, right? That's the most precious material in the world, not money or wealth or health, whatever. It's we want the desire of those we desire. But it gets really interesting. We start to actually desire what the other desires. So if you're going out with somebody, you start to take their interests. You start to become interested in French cinema if they're into French cinema or, you know, jogging if they're into jogging. You start to, their desire influences how you desire. Now, one of the problems with that is it can erupt in jealousy. Because say, for example, you start to desire the partner of your friend because they desire them, then you become conflictual, a conflict arises, so that's jealousy. Or you can desire the type of relationship that the other has with what they desire. So for example, you don't desire their partner, but you desire the type of relationship they have with their partner, right? You don't desire their children, but you would desire a relationship with children, whatever, so, and that's envy. Envy is where you start to desire the, the, the structural relationship the person has with the object. Or you start to desire to become them, which, is a, which can explode into obsession. Or you can desire to usurp them, which ends up in rivalry, right? All of these things is, what happens is called mimetic desire, is we start to, this unknown dimension of the other, we fantasize what it is they like, what it is they enjoy. We start to desire that ourselves. This puts us into conflict. Now, this is original. This is for René Girard, original sin, right? Orig as an originary loss. There is an originary gap within us. Desire is a gap. Desire is a loss. Desire is what is fundamental to us. And out of desire comes conflict. It's inherent. We live in LA where people think they can divorce desire from toxicity, right? That's the, that's it. But it, that's a, but that's a common thing in, in, in the modern world is that somehow there is not an originary loss. There is not an originary potential conflict that arises always out of desire. For René Girard, you can't escape it. And all civilizations have found a solution. The solution is a scapegoat mechanism. The scapegoat mechanism is where Whenever violence starts to corrode the social link, we find someone we can all blame, then we all kill them, or symbolically kill them, or really kill them, and then we, we unify briefly together, and that's the solution that society comes to. So for example, if a couple are fighting a lot and they go to a therapist, they can, and they both think the therapist is a dick, they both, um, they both temporarily start to get really close to each other because they both blame the therapist for being rubbish, right? So, um, and, it, and it brings, do you remember in 2013, there was a woman called Jessie Saccaro, was it Jessie Saccaro? Who, she got on a plane in America, she sent this tweet out, just this silly little kind of parody tweet saying, I, I'm going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Hey, who am I kidding, I'm white, right? So she put that on. She got on the plane. She had a big job uh, in some director in some company. And during the flight in the air, this went viral, right? So 13 hours, she was sleeping on the plane. At 13 hours, this, this tweet went viral. And by the time she landed, there were journalists in the airport waiting for her, right? She was destroyed. She lost her job. She lost everything. Every, and in a rare moment of unity, because Twitter was in the verge of absolute collapse, everybody could unify around the hatred of Jesse, right? So it, 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 was a, it was a way in which we could take all of the violence and then focus it on this person. But it was obviously a self-deprecating joke, which is, oh, I'm an American, ha, I don't think you can get AIDS, right? It was this kind of like the kind of joke you would see on Family Guy or, or The Simpsons. But everyone got involved, right? And I'm sure some of us could put our hands up and go, like, we got involved, you know? But that's what the scapegoat mechanism is, is so as to, when, when violence almost becomes intolerable, we find a scapegoat, put the violence on the scapegoat, and temporarily we can get rid of the toxicity. Anyway, that's not what I want to talk about. <laughs> but, um, but it is interesting. Um, but the main thing I want to concentrate on is dusting, right? The dusting is from when we're young, this enigmatic, what does the other want from me? The mother is a mystery, and that unknowing generates our desire. So our desire is evoked, 
from that desire, that unknowing, right, is so, so powerful and so central. Another thing I don't want to talk about, but I will mention because it's interesting, is um, when we get older, when we encounter that early experience of the other's desire in adulthood, it really, it's what, this is called jouissance. It be, it's this pleasurable pain. Uh, Freud gave an example of this woman. I think she was called Emma. She, when she was a teenager, she was in a shop and she freaked out because she thought that the shopkeepers were laughing at her, laughing at what she was wearing. She ran out of the shop. She was mortified by it and she found it very hard to, to go into shops. But she was also fascinated by it. So there was this jouissance, this pleasurable suffering. Uh, like uh, Shizek calls it the ticklish subject, by the way. So whenever you get tickled, it's horrible, and also you're laughing, right? So it's pleasurable suffering, right? We're ticklish subjects, and we're tickled by something. And what, what Freud discovered was that when she was young, this shopkeeper touched her inappropriately, grouped her, and he had this look of pleasure on his face. Now, she was too young to understand sexually anything, but she saw this pleasure, this desire in the shopkeeper's face. And then later on in adulthood, there was a replaying of this early encounter with the enigmatic desire of the other. What does the other want from me? I know the other is getting something from me and is desiring me, but what is it they want? And that experience was kind of traumatic, right? That's, that's jouissance, and that's, that's, that's what's called objet petit a in psychoanalysis. So we this question of what does the other want from us remains with us, right? But here's the problem. We fantasize that there is a, a substance to it, that the other knows what they desire, right? Hegel famously said, and Shizek quotes it, the mysteries of the Egyptians were mysteries to the Egyptians as well. It's not just that I don't know what you desire, you don't know what you desire, right? You, desire is a type of black box, a mystery that is evoked by others. There's no sub substance to it. But we live in a world where constantly people are told that you can fulfill your desire. You can stop it up. You can get the thing that will make you feel like you're no longer lacking, right? So traditionally, there is a notion that everybody is castrated. It was a very common experience for everybody to feel that they were lacking, that to be a subject, they had to give up something very significant, a pleasure, right? But there was always a fantasy that there was one who was exempted from castration. And usually that was God, the one who lacks the lack. So we're, we're all castrated. We all had to give up something to enter into the world. We all feel a substantial loss. We're all unified in that, by the way. We all get on well because we're all, to a certain extent, marked by this loss. But there's some other who is not castrated. Maybe the king, the queen, God, whatever. There is some other who, ha who has it all, but none of us do. Right? But that is very gradually, over the last few hundred years, very gradually become the idea that the, from the God who castrates to the God of the demand to enjoy, we currently live, and this is LA is the, the, the religious mecca of the world, really, and it is the God of the demand to enjoy. Everywhere you are told that you do not have to be castrated, that you can, through uh, commodity satisfaction, psychedelic enlightenment, sexual liberation, uh, political purity, whatever it is, you can lack the lack. And you're constantly surrounded, especially on social media, by people who lack the lack people who have substantially satisfied that desire and they'll, you know, for a small price, 25 bucks, come to this pub and I will give you the answer, right? You know, I will, I will be able to rob you of your lack. I will be able to make you satisfied, right? And that's why you come to things like this. If I told you up front the truth that I can't do that, you wouldn't come. I have to pretend that I have some secret that I can fulfill your lack and make you feel better. If I told you I can't, we're all in this together, you'd be like, I'm not spending 25 bucks on that. So, um, and that's transference anyway. But, but is it, and it's very important, you know, I have to, I have to make you believe in me before I re you realize how I, I can't do anything. Um, but, so, there's, there's the God of, the, of castration. God, there's some other out there, James Bond or whatever, who's not, who lacks the lack, but, but we're all lacking. 
And then we move to the God of the demand to enjoy, which is this constant demand that you can be all that you can be, have all that you can have, that you can get rid of the antagonism of desire, that you can have you know, chocolate without calories, you can have desire without obsession, rivalry, jealousy, and envy. That somehow, like, it's not like heat and light. It's not like they're intertwined like that. It's somehow you can have the pure. And so we get obsessed with, well, lots of things. One is uh, social fragmentation, because you start to get jealous and envious of the others who seem to have everything when you don't, right? So you start to hate the other who, who has it all. Then you also experience this a desperate attempt to avoid the trauma of sexuality by, by trying to kind of like name your sexuality to such an extent that you take the trauma out of it. Right, so that you've got it without, without it's without the calories. Right, war without conflict, as Shizek would say. We get the, you get your sexuality without the trauma that sexuality is. You, there's resentments, there's depression, there's all sorts of things that arise from this idea that everyone else around you on social media and Facebook all seem to have the thing that I don't. Right, all seem to have this pleasure. Um, now. This is the move, by the way, from private pleasure, which is what a child has. An infant suckles at the breast and is just happy. But once you separate and you experience this loss, then you don't have pure private pleasure anymore. None of us can have private pleasure anymore. All of our pleasure is symbolic. That's why Shizek tells a story of the, you know, the guy in the desert island who's washed up and the only other survivor is... Um, Raquel Welsh. And Raquel Welsh is looking at this guy, this guy Seamus, and he's going, like, I'm never going to go out with this guy. He may be the only guy on the island, but we are not dating. I'm not going to sleep with this guy. But you know what? A couple of years pass, and she starts to go, well, my options are looking pretty limited, right? It's just the two of us. And Seamus is trying his best lines. All of that. You know, is it, uh, you know, whatever. I can't even think of any lines. And he eventually convinces her uh, to have a nice romantic meal, and then they sleep together. And the next day, Seamus gets up. You probably know the story. He says, could you draw a little mustache on your face? Okay. And could you put on my clothes, my boots, and my, like, my jeans? Okay. And my hat. Oh, great. And put on my glasses. Some weird sex game. No, no, no. Just do it. And, and could you meet me down at the beach in 10 minutes? She goes, okay. And so she goes down to the beach. And she's waiting there. And then Seamus runs up, grabs her, gives her a big hug, and says, it's so good to see you. She says, you'll never guess who I just slept with. Right? In other words, it wasn't enough to sleep with Raquel Welsh. He had to tell somebody, right? So, and that's, that's the thing. It was not enough for us to have enjoyment. We have to put on Instagram to get the substitute enjoyment of, the, of people knowing that we're enjoying, right? We're in this public enjoyment. So the problem is we have anxiety. We think there's a substantial way in which we can get rid of the toxicity of desire, et cetera, et cetera and it just generates more and more conflict. So what's the answer? And before I give you the answer, I'll give you the false answer. Is any society that demands to enjoy will create a retroactive return to the God of castration. In other words, the anxiety that's produced from pure enjoyment creates so much anxiety that you will, people will want to have constraint and restraint and will go back to very conservative notions, right? But the trick is, you can never go back to the God of castration. I mean, if you could, that would be great, but you can't. So what you'll notice today is you'll notice very conservative figures who are figures of conservatism. Do it in the name of the God of the demand to enjoy. No sex before marriage. Why? So that you can have more fun having sex, right? So you have someone like Hillsong or whatever. I'm not like overly against, but they all look like rock stars. They all look like people of pure enjoyment, right? So the idea is that conservatism is precisely in the service of enjoyment. You, even like conservative political figures who, who seem to have, you know, they advocate for, for very conservative values, but look like they're having excessive enjoyment. Right? In other words, the God of the demand to enjoy is the God of today. Theologically, that is the God of today. So what is the answer? So the answer for me is not the God who castrates us all but is not castrated. It is not the God of the demand to enjoy that says you can all have everything you want and lack the lack. Oh, and, and one thing on that, there's two types of religious experience that you'll notice in this. The religious experience pre-modern, what was it? It was the experience of the, the mysterium tremendum, 
or of absolute dependence. So if you look at how mystical experience was talked about like in the 1700s and before that, it was in front of the absolute, I experience myself as nothing. I am a finite being ruptured and decentered by the infinite, right? Now today, the predominant spirituality is, is I am one with the infinite. Not that I am rendered nothing from the infinite, but I can be one with the infinite. So that's, I think that parallels with social media and all of that. So what is the religious experience of parotheology? <laughs> it's the idea that that God is castrated as well. That it's not just that dissatisfaction is in me. It's not just that dissatisfaction is in all of you. Dissatisfaction is woven into reality itself. There is a quantum or asymmetrical dimension to reality. And in politics, it's called democracy. Democracy is the non-at-oneness of the political body with itself that generates civilization, right? In mathematics, it's Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Mathematics, the axioms of mathematics cannot prove themselves. In physics, it's quantum indeterminacy, superpositioning. Uh, in psychoanalysis, it's the unconscious. The subject is not at one with itself. The unconscious being the name of the not at oneness of the subject with itself. You see it in various ways that we come to understand that there is some sort of inherent uh, nothingness, unknowing, working within reality itself. And I just want to finish with a story. Um, it's a story which I think captures this, of this guy, Seamus, who he's, uh, he loses his job. Terrible, right? He's worried he's not going to be able to pay his rent. He's praying to God, very pious man, very pious man, he prays to heaven, it's just like, God, I'm really worried, really worried I'm going to lose my home. What am I going to do? And he hears the voice of God, a pious man. God speaks to him, says, Seamus, sell everything you have, go to Vegas. What? Sell everything you have, go to Vegas. So Seamus does it. He says, absolutely, I hear the call. Goes to Vegas. He's there. He looks up to heaven. What should I do? Here's the voice of God. Seamus, go into the first casino you come to and play one hand of Texas Hold'em. Seamus goes in plays one hand of Texas hold and he gets dealt seven two off. He's like, oh, he's about to fold. He hears the voice of God saying, Seamus, go all in. Seven two off, what? He's like, go all in. And Seamus, he's thinking about Abraham. He's like, gotta do it. So he pushes all his money in and two people follow him. They all flip over, pair of jacks, pair of queens. Oh. But sure enough, bam, flop comes a two and a seven. So two pairs. Then the, then the uh, turn is another seven. It's like, oh my goodness, and the flop, another two. He's got like a full house or whatever. He's like, whoa, my goodness, I can't believe it. Can't believe it. Takes all of the money. Here's the voice of God saying, Seamus, take all that money. You play one hand of blackjack. Seamus goes, goes to the blackjack table, puts it all one hand, gets dealt 16. He's about to stick. He hears the voice of God saying, no, Seamus, Take another card. What? Take another card. Takes another card, puts him to 18. So, good, good. Bite the, bite the stick. Here's the voice of God. Hit again. 18, hit again, hit again, hit again. Hits again, hits him at 20. He's at 20. He's like, right, okay, I'm going to stick. Here's the voice of God again. Seamus, you hit again. Seamus hits again. Yes, 21 wins. I can't believe it. Voice of God says, now Seamus, you go to the roulette table. You put everything on seven. Seamus gets up, goes to the roulette table, puts everything on seven. Ball starts to roll. Bounces, bounces, bounces. Sure enough, it hits seven. Seamus is crying. There's a whole crowd at the moment, all cheering. Seamus looks up to heaven and says, he says, God, he says, I don't believe it. And he hears the voice of God one last time. He says, like, he says, I don't believe it either. You're the luckiest motherfucker I've ever seen. <laughs> like, that, I think if you understand that parable, you understand the secret of life. Now, at least you understand the secret of salvation. Is that we think that the other has substance and has, knows everything. But what if reality itself is also dissatisfied? And what if that is salvation? Because here's the problem, right? We may know that life doesn't work out. 
But yet, still in alternative worlds, we have visions of ourselves in which we would have worked out, right? So we know that there's division in the real world, but we still believe that there's a lack of division in these alternative worlds, these possible worlds. In philosophy, they're called possible worlds. But what if, no, all of the possible worlds are just as divided? Because division is within reality. This is called the crucified Christ. This is called Eloi, Eloi, Labak, Sabatani. This is called um, the God who is self-divided. It's called communion, a group of people who gather together around a shared loss, the death of God. And I think that is what we need today. I didn't know how it would go How I could fall so fast and how Slowly we touch Well, I showed you mine favorite song Life gave a chance We jumped in the deep Your river and waves they washed over me All to let go But I got to know the face of Holy 
to the sea yeah this is for me the face of love I found the original flyer um <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's worse. It's way worse. So uh, another round of applause for Lisa and Michael Gunger, everybody. Very beautiful. And please keep your applause going for an interview between Ryan Nicodemus and Dr. Peter Rollins. That's a question. Um, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, by the way, surround myself with people who probably don't agree with anything I'm saying, including probably, you know, Lisa, Michael, and maybe Elliot, and maybe Ryan, and I love that. So um, I, you know, want you to give me a hard time if you want about this idea. Of oh, don't worry, Pete. I got and, you, buddy. You know, I'm the kind, I'm the kind of pessimistic kind of like think that there's death infused in everything and dissatisfaction, and then I hear them sing, and I'm like, oh, it's, everything's, life is beautiful, it's all wonderful. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting, like, every time I talk, well, yeah, every time I talk to you, I learn something new, but I remember when, like, when we first started being friends, I really thought I had it figured out, and you really helped me see how I had nothing figured out, and I, uh, I really yeah. appreciate that, man. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Um, so, Pete, you never really double backed on the whole life after death ah, thing, man. Yes. yes Maybe I'm you should uh, talk about that. Yeah. Well, my, my point my point in terms of the idea that there's life after death is simply that, that there is a fundamental castration or loss at the very fundamental birth of life. Uh, Shizek calls this less than nothing, is there's nothing and then there's something subtracted from nothing and the result of that is subjectivity. And to circle back and make the connection is what I want to argue is that death is infused within everything. There is a nothingness or a a asymmetry that is within reality itself. And God is the name of that lack. So Simone Weil talks about this. Simone Weil, like God is the name of the quantum indeterminacy of reality itself. And I think that is a better definition of God than what we find in confessional or substantive religion. Yeah, so when you asked me to do this, you said, hey man, let's have a conversation about yeah. religion. So. I, um, I hate to get bogged down in definitions, but I think we need to define, like when you said you wanted to have a conversation about religion, like what, what did you mean by that? What did I mean by that? That's a good question, yeah. And very basically, because obviously it's a hard question, but I would say that religion at its core is a type of orientation to that which is non-reducible to materiality, right? So, and I, I have to keep it very broad, but so there's the material world, what you can taste, touch, see, think, etc. Religion is an orientation to an otherwise than being, to a dimension that is not reducible to materiality. Now, there's a number of ways that you can reflect on that. So some the confessional religion thinks that that is a substantive being beyond reality. But it can also be death. Death is also something that you can't taste, touch, or see. In fact, as soon as it happens to you, you can't do any of those things, right? So, uh, so that's what I mean by religion. And, and, and that's why I am very interested in religion. I think that you cannot get rid of the theological. The theological is, so whenever I talk about, for example, the God of the demand to enjoy, that's theological. I say we live in an environment where there is a super egoic injunction to fulfill your dreams. Right? to be an entrepreneur, to be transparent, to try to uh, get rid of repression, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's this, that's, a, that's a kind of theological demand. But anyway, that's what, what's what I mean by religion. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I was raised Jehovah's Witness, which is like a very strict Christian religion, for those who don't know uh, what that religion is. And, you know, I, I used to, it used to give me all the answers. It was this wonderful thing I had in my life, and I knew exactly why were we here, where were we going, where we came from. And then it all fell apart. And now, um, you know, I have, I have no answers. But yeah. what I do want to ask you next is, like, what or when can religion be used for, I almost want to say good, but 
I want to keep morality out of this as much as because I think we moralize things too much. So when is religion useful? When is it not useful? Maybe. Yeah. So the religion that I'm talking about, the kind of the religious perspective that I'm speaking about, which is basically the acceptance that there is nothing that can satisfy you. <laughs> that sounds, by the way, the good news of Christianity usually is, hey, you can, be, you can be happy, whole, and complete. Come to the front, and you, know, you can have that. And that, you, know, you can get your private jet from that kind of stuff. That's, that's, a, that's a message that preaches. But, whenever, but I'm saying, no, that's bad news. That's bad news. Whenever you say you can be happy, whole, and complete, you experience the tyranny of happiness and the tyranny of certainty. And it creates anxiety, it creates all sorts of problems. The bad news of come to the front so that you can embrace dissatisfaction, unhappiness, and unknowing, that sounds like terrible news, but I'm like, no, that's great news. That's wonderful news, right? Um, that when, like, so when, when I mentioned earlier, I mean, I, I was blasting through things earlier, but when I mentioned that somebody might, for example, break up with a person and they go, oh, you know, my life is, you know, like, I wish I was with them. Um, they're depressed because they're imagining an alternative world where if they were together with them, everything would be perfect. Everything would work out or be really good, right? So they're tyrannized by the fantasy in this alternative world that everything would work out. Now, things might be a little bit better. Things might be a little bit worse, whatever, but it wouldn't fix everything, right? It wouldn't get rid of desire because desire is what we are, desire. So when I talk about... Um, the benefit of this position, it is interestingly, it frees you from the frenetic pursuit of commodity satisfaction, of thinking that the next iPhone, the next car, the next this, the next that will satisfy you. It orientates you to realizing that dissatisfaction is actually satisfying, that there's something about struggle and work and sacrifice that is really important. And it starts to help you realize that the fantasy of the sacrifice of sacrifice which is what we have today, which is if you work hard enough, eventually you might have enough money to go by the beach, sit, not have to do anything, just relax, right? So the fantasy of the sacrifice of sacrifice will kill you, right? That actually sacrifice is essential to experiencing depth. You cannot experience meaning and depth without sacrifice. And so what you actually, the problem is when you sacrifice and somebody else benefits from it all the time, right? But but sacrifice itself is beneficial. Dissatisfaction is satisfying. And then, and then very briefly, politically, I'll give you a political answer what this can be useful for. If conservative ideology has a problem because it positivizes a particular universal, I'll explain what I mean. I have to do it in philosophy first, and I'll, <laughs> um, which means that under the guise of universality, say, for example, meritocracy, right? Meritocracy is a universal. If you work hard, you will succeed. Meritocracy is universal. It applies to everybody, right? The critique of that politically is to negativize the universal, to show that actually it helps certain people over others. There's, although it looks like it's a universal, it helps people who already have money, already have riches, who already have education or whatever. So the critique of conservatism, which is identity politics, is often the... So the, the conservative universalizes, universalizes a positive, right? The critique negates the universal. So the critique is no, all there are particular identities, particular groups, all competing in society intersectionally, right? We intersect in all sorts of different types of identity and we have to learn how to work with that. The third step, which is the step of power of theology is no, you negate the universal. Sorry, uni sorry, universalize the negation. And to universalize the negation is to say, no, no, no. The real political move is to realize that what is eternal is struggle itself. And giving yourself over to the rebel, the, the eternal struggle, is where satisfaction is, where enjoyment is, and where political change is. I think that's good news. You know, I, I really want to... Um this is for my own uh, uh, my own sake, but we've talked a couple times about you know th there's three different kind of ways of looking at um, the universe, life in itself. With you know the first level being there's a oneness. Can you ex can you describe those three levels? Because I think it's so important for people to understand. Okay, well, thank you. That's good. I said you're setting that one up. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I think yeah, what you're describing is often the two 
there's, there's a few ways of understanding reality. One is monism, everything is one, right? Everything is ultimately the one, and either it's an illusion, separation is an illusion which we have to overcome, or there is a real ontological separation but which can be overcome. So Eastern religions are tend towards it's an illusion that can be seen through, the veil of illusions. Western religions tend towards there's an ontological failure that then can be reconciled, but ultimately everything is one. So that's monism, everything is one. Uh, a very other ma major popular view is everything is two, dualism. Uh, the universe is made up of masculine, feminine, chaos, order, yin, yang, that, that, that they create a, what's called a dual organization. They come together and create a kind of oneness, but in, in their duality. And then there is a, the not one. Di dialectics and dialectics says that the universe is not one and it's not multiple. It's not one. It's not two. It's not one. It's um, the universe is not one with itself, <laughs> and uh, and so in other words, it's, like, it's trinitarian, right? God is not one with God, so the separation is called Jesus, and then the separation itself is called Holy Ghost. So the not at oneness of reality with itself is trinitarian. That's dialectics, and I think that's I think that's the accurate way of understanding yeah. reality. I mean, it's, to me, that's interesting because, like, I have gone through these levels uh, after leaving Christianity. It's like Christianity is, it is this, um, for the most part, it is this oneness. And, but there's something getting in the way of this oneness. And if we get rid of, if we get rid of that thing, then we can all be one. And um, I kind of moved to that, that duality where it's like, well, no, like, there's, there is love in me, but there's also hate in me. There's good in me. There's also, you know, evil tendencies in me. And, and I have to recognize those things. And, and I'm trying to move to this third level, which is just kind of almost accepting uh, uh, the, the not oneness, which I, I can kind of look at as, as chaos. Yes. But, but that being said, um, let's... I don't want to give away the answer, but I'm going to give it away. So you kind of identify People as... People will leave my Patreon if we give away the answer. Right, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. Tune into Patreon for the... Yeah. For the answer. For, for the, the answer, right, exactly. So, um, you know, I've asked you before, like, you know, would you consider yourself a Christian? And you say, yeah, like, I consider myself a Christian. But I don't think you use Christianity in that oneness, though. I think you... So, so I guess expound on... You would call yourself a Christian, but wh why, why do you call yourself a Christian? Yeah, I'm... Only because, um, like solely, this is a, it's a really good question, right? Solely because um, I think in the history of ideas, the idea of a divided absolute, um, the, the idea of a dead God, the death of God, is actually quite phenomenal. Like genuinely, people don't, like if God, either if God exists, God can't die because God's eternal, or God doesn't exist, so it's purely poetic. Right? So God can't die because it's a poetry. You can say, so whenever Nietzsche says God is dead, you, kinda, you go like either he's wrong because God can't die or he's being poetic. I'm going like, no, 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 I take it literally. I take it literally that, that there is within reality itself death, non-being, lack. And in fact, I would say it's the most eternal dimension of reality itself. And I see that articulated in this notion of kenosis or double kenosis, which is not simply that God dies, but God experiences God's, God experiences God's alienation from God's self. That's really interesting. Like, so in, in psychoanalysis, there's two things. There's alienation and separation. Alienation is whenever I feel separate from you. So the child feels distance from the father or whatever. Then separation is where I realize that I'm not just uh, distant from you, you're distant from yourself. So at first I'm trying to overcome the distance. I'm thinking, well, I'm separated from the other, but I could reunify. But then I realize the other is separated from itself. And then when I realize the other is separated from itself, I'm unified with them in their separation. I'm going like, oh, we're all in this shit together, right? So that, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's fascinating to me how growing up and hearing the, the, the story of, you know, Jesus coming to earth and sacrificing himself for all our sins, I, I've never looked at it in a way where this, um, this story, it is, it's, it's like we had to kill God in order to have what we have today with Christianity in, in, its, in its sense that it is today. Yeah, it's a radical doubt. And this is why new atheism is not atheist enough. In that new atheism 
Right, so the interesting thing about the atheism of Christianity is it's not epistemological necessarily. So in this line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? There's a belief in God, you're orienting yourself to God, right? It's an existential atheism. It's an atheism in which you experience the profound loss of anything that will make you satisfied, right? It doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. That's relevant. I've never been interested. Whatever, that's a personal thing. I want to know whether you existentially have gone through the experience of the death of God. Now, the first person to come up with that idea was the Apostle Paul, right? Apostle Paul said, there's something about the death of God that is central to salvation, right? Then it was Luther who theologized it. He made a theology around it. Then it was Hegel who made it into a philosophy, who gave it the dignity of philosophy. Then it was Nietzsche who made it existential. So Nietzsche basically returned to Paul. Nietzsche was the one who said, you have to pass through the death of God. Then Freud created the technology to do it, and then Lacan perfected it. And then right here, it's the answer, right? <laughs> no, that's it. Um, but but this, this experience of existentially losing everything, of feeling the ground go from your feet, of this absolute loss of everything. For me, that's the nihilistic core of Christianity. That's conversion. But there is another stage. There's a third stage, right? You lose everything, and then you enjoy the loss. There is, there is the point where you realize that you can never somehow get rid of the fermenting chaosmos that you're talking about of existence and then there's a point where you say yes and amen to it and you flow with it and um yeah yeah it's fascinating because religion it's such a great tool to um to, it gives us answers but you know i think about for me it really helped me with like all my traumas and i think you know every single one of us um we're all going through some sort of trauma we're all trying to work through some sort of trauma and, uh, yeah, it's nice to have um, answers kind of tied up in a bow. Um, but when I personally, like, left that organization, the not knowing drove me crazy. It, it, was, ins it was insane. And I was looking for answers here and there, and I couldn't grasp anything because I was so scared to put my faith into anything after, you know, what that did to me. And... Now, um, I've been out for probably 15 years, a little, a little over, and now, um, it, especially like with philosophy like yours, like I'm really getting comfortable with the not knowing. Like instead of needing the answers, it's more about like how can I sit with not having the answers? And I, I think that's what you mean with the lack, right? Yeah, so, and this, this gets us right back to the very first story I told. And this is where you don't have to go with me, you're, you're free to be wrong. But if you do <laughs> want to be correct, uh, the Whenever I first told that story of the mystic, um, and, I, and I identified with the mystic, there's nothing wrong with that. That's the kind of unknowing that I think we start with. We start with, I don't know the nature of reality. But I do think, and this is, this is the difficult, this is the radical, this is the scandalous idea. This is the, the, and this is the heart of power theology. The scandalous idea is that unknowing is not simply what we feel in relation to something we cannot understand, but that unknowing is inherent to nature. So Shizek uses the example of a computer game. He takes it from somebody else, but imagine a computer game where the, the computer programmer hasn't bothered to program what's behind certain doors because they don't think you're gonna go there. And then through the computer game, you go behind a door and then you get this blurry kind of stuff that hasn't been programmed. I said, that's what God's like. God kind of like created the universe to a certain level and then said, you'll never get, to, they'll never get to the quantum level, right? So I don't need to program what that looks like, right? And then miraculously, we got to the quantum level. So we got to the point where we realized the universe is fuzzy. What, what's that comedian called Helbig? Is it Helbig, the comedian? Looks like you, scruffy guy. Yeah. Yeah, Mitch. A lot of white guys look like me. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. You got to, he, he um, I saw the look before you grew the hair. My, I didn't even recognize you. God. Um, so Helberg has this brilliant joke. It's a brilliant joke. It's very, so good. I mean, it must be my favorite joke ever, I think. It's just so simple. But he says, you know, have you ever noticed that, like, um, all the pictures of Bigfoot are fuzzy? They're always fuzzy. They're always fuzzy. I was just thinking, he says, maybe Bigfoot's just fuzzy. 
right? <laughs> this is brilliant. That's the thing, is that the universe kind of looks fuzzy to us because we don't have the perspective. Then we get the perspective and go like, maybe the universe is fuzzy. Maybe the universe is not determined. So th this is actually a, a critique of determinism. I'm not a determinist. That I think spontaneity and novelty, fuzziness exists at the heart of reality. And the name of that fuzziness in the radical tradition is God. Every time we talk, I have a million questions for you about religion. Um, and it's funny because like, I'm now piecing together how uh, my trauma when I left the organization was the trauma of not knowing. And it's interesting because it, it, the, the answer, the, the obvious answer, which I don't think is the right answer, is, well, I, not, well, I just have to find a different path of knowing. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and, that's, like, and that's why I'm not confessional. Like, I'm not confessionally religious because I think religion does try to give you the answer. It does try to substantialize God. I don't think religion has got to the notion of the death of God yet. I don't think we have a death of God religion yet. I don't think we do. I find it fascinating that, because you, you keep coming back to that, like we all need to unite around the death of God. Yeah, which is yeah. what communion is. Oh, by the way, a community is a group of people unified around a shared set of beliefs or a shared enemy. A communion is a group of people who unify around a shared loss, mm. right? The burning man is an example, right? Unified around the burning, right? whatever. Communion around a shared loss. The insight is, in a sense, the death of God for me is a way of saying that reality is divided that reality is divided. So, and, and what I think we need, we need liturgy, art, music, sermons, parables, that in which we can enter into the existential experience of that. That's what paratheology practices. We can't just do it intellectually. That's not an intellectual. You have to undergo the experience in your very being itself. What unifies us is not our different beliefs and our different identities. What unifies us is we are all castrated, including God. So in other words, what, like we can be, and this, AA is a perfect example. It's a type of communion. AA, you're not unified by your, your beliefs, your money, your this, your that. You're unified by a shared trauma. Now, there's two types of trauma. There's the traumas that happen to us, and there's the trauma that is us. To be human is to be traumatized, as in to be cut, to be castrated. So the death of God, what unifies us is we're unified around saying that we all lack, including reality itself. That's the unifying feature. I would say. Yeah. There's a political dimension to that.